You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to May's edition of the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This week, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Beau Bruce talks me through this still mysterious syndrome and offers some advice for clinical neurologists. They have to team up with an eye care specialist that they trust that can help them monitor the patient and know when uh, one of these more aggressive interventions may need to be taken. But firstly, another peer back in Sir JNMP archive with the latest of our impact commentaries. In the early 1980s, Charles Bolton was working in the Department of Clinical Neurological Sciences at the Victoria Hospital in London, Ontario, Canada, when over four years he observed a series of patients referred from the intensive care unit with similar but mysterious symptoms. Despite scepticism from the academic community, his JNMP published investigations came to the revelatory conclusion that these were neurological sequelae of critical illness. Dr Bolton is now at the Department of Medicine, Queen's University, Ontario, Canada. I spoke to him over the phone and began by asking him about these initial patients. They were referred to me as a neurologist and electromographer because the intensivists had noticed that there was unexplained difficulty in weaning from the ventilator and that the limbs seemed weak. So I had no idea what was causing it, but I knew that an EMG would be necessary. So I arranged for the first patient to be taken up while on a ventilator to our EMG laboratory. And I did this uh, with four of the five patients. The fifth patient actually didn't have any of that testing, but the polyneuropathy was identified at the time of autopsy. Uh, What I found was that there is a marked uh, axonal degeneration of motor and sensory fibers in the limbs and also uh, had affected the phrenic nerves and the chest wall nerves. We did a large number of studies looking into uh, traditional causes of uh, axonal degeneration of the nerves. All proved negative. The only common factor was that these patients were critically ill. That is, they had sepsis, and multiple organ failure. And as soon as that condition came under control, improvement in the polyneuropathy occurred. So was this a completely new idea that this, the critical illness, the sepsis and the organ failure could cause these kinds of problems? I mean, did you have any research or, or opinions to, to go on? Well, at the time, we didn't. And it seemed to be an entirely new idea. One of the reasons I had difficulty in getting the article accepted was that uh, neuromuscular uh, specialists and others thought this was just another form of uh, Guillain-Barré syndrome. But uh, the method of onset, the pure axonal generation, uh, and other factors uh, indicated to me that it clearly was not. So when we looked uh, back more into the literature, We found that William Osler, in his famous uh, textbook in 1892, uh, had described uh, severe uh, muscle weakness 
in prolonged uh, sepsis. And then there had been a few reports in the 1960s, but uh, no one had really attributed it to sepsis and multiple organ failure. So what was it that made JNMP accept your paper if there were sceptics? Well, if you read the paper, everything was very comprehensively documented. I think it was on that basis that uh, David Marsden accepted the paper. It was rejected by the New England Journal of Medicine and uh, the Annals of Internal Medicine. The editor of the Annals, it's uh, kind of funny to me, (laughs) he said in his rejection letter that these were obviously uh, cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. The thing that puzzled him was that the cerebrospinal fluid protein was not elevated abnormally as it should be in Guillain-Barre syndrome. And he wondered if maybe our laboratory in London uh, had been in error in measuring the protein. Uh, Really a remarkable statement. Right. Well, I bet he's kicking himself now. (laughs) Well. And then how did the, the myopathy and then the encephalopathy come to be known about as well? How did all these, these threads come together? Well, first the encephalopathy. All of these patients had gone through a stage of varying degrees of a depressed level of consciousness, sometimes quite profound. CT head scans and examination of spinal fluid were non-contributory but uh, they all had varying severities of abnormalities uh, in the electroencephalogram. And uh, the autopsies of the brain in most of these patients had not shown anything that uh, clearly explained uh, the encephalopathy. We felt this was a septic encephalopathy. It had been previously described mainly in animal uh, experiments. The myopathy we had suspected from the beginning because uh, in addition to the EMG signs and the autopsy findings of uh, polyneuropathy, there was also evidence in some patients of uh, scattered necrosis of muscle and other findings that uh, really couldn't be explained on the basis of the denervation secondary uh, to the neuropathy. Mm-hmm. And it later became evident, and others uh, observed this, that it's quite common for the polyneuropathy and the myopathy uh, to occur together, both being uh, complications of the sepsis. For you, looking back on this work, what is it, nearly uh, 30 years later, what is the, the most important impact for you? What have been the most satisfying discoveries that have followed on for it? Or is it the patient benefits that have really excited you? Well, the uh, problem has been these patients are quite often not diagnosed in the intensive care unit. They don't get a neurological consultation. They don't have an EMG. They're uh, discharged to the general uh, hospital floor Quite often, they have great difficulty in standing, can't get off a toilet seat. They have difficulty in using their arms, and they go through a period of considerable 
muscle weakness with gradual recovery. Some of them also have lingering effects in their thinking. And all of this remains a puzzle to the patient and the family and the caregivers. Fortunately, there are people in different parts of the world are focusing on this problem of rehabilitation. I occasionally see in just a general outpatient neurology clinic, not necessarily referred to me because I'm an expert in the area, just just a neurologist, a patient will come in with unexplained neuromuscular symptoms and mental symptoms. Just recently, a middle-aged man who uh, had never been off sick and uh, suddenly collapsed at home and remembers nothing for the next three weeks. Well, he was admitted to the intensive care unit with severe uh, sepsis, bloodstream infection, uh, secondary to a large abscess in his uh, jaw. Afterwards, uh, he had all the symptoms of uh, weakness and difficulty uh, thinking. After a year, he was still not recovered. He couldn't think effectively enough, clearly, to return to his job. He lost all of his insurance coverage. He was out without money. He now has to live with his brother. Well, he's gradually still improving. But uh, quite a bit of the research shows that uh, it may take up to five years for these uh, residual effects to uh, disappear. I think this is a good example of what is now, unfortunately, still unrecognized sequelae of critical illness. That was Dr. Charles Bolton. You can read his original 1983 paper alongside his impact commentary online. Now, Barry Bruce, Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology and Neurology at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, on what we do and don't know about idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Good morning, Bo. Thanks very much for coming on. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, to set this up, what are the symptoms that come under this term, idiopathic intracranial hypertension? Well, basically, the symptoms that uh, we see in this disorder are the very symptoms that we associate with increased intracranial pressure from any cause. And those symptoms are headaches, primarily, nausea, vomiting, a symptom we call transient visual obscurations, which are these brief, usually seconds, of the vision going dim or completely dark in one or both eyes, usually associated with a sort of change in position or a cough or some kind of Valsalva-type maneuver. And then one of the primary signs of increased intracranial pressure is the swelling of the optic nerves bilaterally, usually with good visual acuity known as papilledema. What sort of prevalence are we talking about and who tends to be most at risk? So the studies that we have uh, on the general population suggest that the prevalence is about one uh, new case per 100,000 person years. So that's fairly uh, rare for a disorder. However, if we start to look at the, the group of people who are at highest risk for this disease, which tend to be 
women in their childbearing years around 20 to 44 years old. And those who are 10 to 20% over their ideal weight, once we get up to that 20%, the prevalence increases to about 20 per 100,000 person years, which is close to the prevalence of something like multiple sclerosis, for example. Sure, okay. And the fact that this is an idiopathic um, syndrome does beg the question, what do clinicians need to rule out when they're thinking about diagnosing it? Well, idiopathic intracranial hypertension also goes by an older name, which we try to avoid now, and that term is pseudotumor cerebri, which basically means it looks like a brain tumor, but it's not. And so one of the most important things, uh, whenever you see the syndrome of increased intracranial pressure to rule out, is a brain tumor. Any sort of mass lesion in the brain needs to be evaluated immediately. We do that with neuroimaging. After that, we need to ensure that the pressure is actually elevated, and we do that by doing a lumbar puncture. We consider the cerebrospinal fluid pressure to be elevated when it's 25 centimeters or greater. And so that tends to be our threshold, although I would say the majority of patients who have this syndrome have pressures usually around 30 to 35, something like that. So usually they're even more elevated. And you need to make sure that you do this in a nice, relaxed position. The other point of the lumbar puncture is to run the routine sorts of tests to make sure there's no evidence of a chronic meningitis, that there's no evidence of carcinomatous meningitis, send it off for cytology and so forth. So that's part of the diagnosis as well. The last thing that is critical to evaluate for is cerebral venous thrombosis. And this is important because there have been uh, several instances where a cerebral venous thrombosis has presented in a way that is otherwise indistinguishable from this syndrome. So we typically try to do a magnetic resonance venography on our patients to ensure that there's no evidence of thrombosis in these patients. Uh, who can otherwise look just like idiopathic intracranial hypertension. And sometimes you can miss that on the routine MRI. Okay. A strong message that I got from the paper was that we've really got an awful lot to learn about this syndrome. But could you talk me through what we already know about its uh, pathophysiology and, and etiology and the hypotheses which have been put forward? Well, we definitely have a long way to go. But basically... It seems very clear because of the people who are at risk for this disease, and again, that tends to be women, right around 90% of cases are women, that probably there's some kind of hormonal aspect. The other thing that's very striking in this disorder is that it's clearly related to overweight and obesity. One of the things that is known from some observational aspects of things is that when uh, people have been in a dire situation and have ended up eating a bear's liver, for example, which is very high in vitamin A, they developed a syndrome of increased intracranial pressure. So then there was a question of whether vitamin A may have something to do with this syndrome, although the data has been very conflicting on that point. Then you have uh, some medications, such as retinoic acid, Sometimes that can bring the syndrome out. So, again, there's something about 
um, these vitamin A compounds that in some cases may have something to do with why certain patients get this disease. But sometimes those are patients who don't have the other features of the disease. So is that a different category, for example? And so then we start to talk about what could weight and hormones and how can we put all of that together? And there's some very fascinating, fairly recent literature on how uh, our adipose tissue is actually an endocrine organ that may have an influence on our intracranial pressure. The other thing that has been put forward is that it seems that almost all patients with this disorder have stenosis, not thrombosis, stenosis, so they have narrowing of their intracranial venous sinuses, especially the transverse venous sinuses. So people have been looking at these venous stenoses very carefully uh, to see if they are a primary effect or a secondary effect. So what about management and treatment? What evidence do we have here? We don't have, I would say, a lot of grade A, class 1 sort of evidence in this disease. There are two major areas of treatment. One is the medical treatment, which for a very long time we've been using a medicine called acetazolamide, which goes by the trade name of Diamox, to try to reduce the intracranial pressure. That medicine is used, for example, for high-altitude sickness. However, there's no, never been a randomized controlled trial of this medicine. Most clinicians have a sense that although it does help reduce the intracranial pressure, it doesn't seem to do it very dramatically. So right now, um, there is a National Institute of Health study in the United States uh, to try to answer that very question. I would say the one thing that we know works from both small randomized kind of pilot studies and a lot of observational data is weight loss. A weight loss of 10 to 15 percent can make a big difference. And then we get into surgical treatments. Uh, again, there are no, certainly no randomized studies of, of these particular treatments, and they're used when people are failing medical therapy or when they have a very fulminant onset where they develop the syndrome very rapidly, usually within a few weeks, and they're uh, losing vision very rapidly and very severely. And you can use one of two types of CSF diversionary procedures. One is a ventricular peritoneal shunt or a lumboperitoneal shunt. You could use either one of those. Alternatively, you can also do an optic nerve sheath fenestration. If you have a choice between the two, we use optic nerve sheath fenestrations when patients have only a problem with vision in one of their eyes, usually more than another, and don't have a lot of associated symptoms because typically you would do these at best sequentially uh, a few weeks apart. So if the patient's really losing vision simultaneously in both eyes, we tend to favor a ventricular peritoneal shunt. Also, when patients have a lot of symptoms, it's unusual for an optic nerve sheath fenestration to really help the patient with their headaches and so forth. So if symptoms are a prominent part of a patient's uh, disease, we tend to uh, try to go for the ventroperitoneal shunts rather than an optic nerve sheath fenestration. Sure. And the lumbar puncture can have often have a treatment effect as well. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And I think that a lot of people are very reluctant to do uh, lumbar punctures 
But in this disease, it's it's extraordinarily important, and I can't emphasize uh, this point enough. It's not only for the diagnosis, but the lumbar puncture itself is really your first treatment. We've seen patients who have basically a complete remission of their disease just from having the lumbar puncture. And why might that be? Well, it seems that as we were talking about the, the compliance in the system and the, the compression of the venous sinuses and so forth, what happens is that we have stable and unstable equilibria. And basically an unstable equilibria is like a coin that you have uh, resting on its edge on your table. It, it'll stay there. But if you perturb it in the least, it's going to go to a stable equilibrium, which is where it's laying flat on its face or on the tail. And so what happens is that as the pressure increases, all these different systems uh, cut in, you reach some kind of stable equilibrium where that coin is laying down. But if you do the spinal tap, you can kind of lift that coin back up on its edge and maybe kind of flip it into the other position and therefore it'll fall back down into this lower pressure state in a more permanent fashion, or at least for a, a longer period of time. Sure, that's a really nice illustration. Do you have any other clinical advice that you'd like to give to neurologists? We would talk quite a lot about diagnosis and treatment, but are there any other messages which you think are important to emphasize? I think that um, for the neurologist, it's very important to team up with a ophthalmologist for this condition. And I'm sure uh, most of the listeners already do that, but it's just worth emphasizing because the visual field defects in this disease are gradual and they're relatively mild until late. And you need to intervene before they become uh, very bad. Uh, these visual field defects are not something that you can pick up on the, on the bedside exam. If you can, it's too late. And so you have to do what we call formal visual fields. You have to do, in general, automated perimetry uh, with something like a Humphrey visual field machine. And you, most neurologists don't have access to that in their clinic. So they have to team up with an eye care specialist that they trust that can do that for them and uh, help them monitor the patient and know when uh, one of these more aggressive interventions may need to be taken. Good news is most patients don't need those more aggressive interventions, but you have to follow them carefully. Sure. Bo, thanks very much for coming on and sharing your insights and offering us a bit of advice too. It was my pleasure. Thank you. There's far more in Bo's paper than we could go over here, so have a read of it online or in print for more details. As the editor's choice, it's free to access. That's everything for this month. In June's podcast, Angela Vincent will be back, talking about neuronal surface antibody-associated syndromes. We'll be looking into the relationship between movement disorders and obsessive-compulsive disorder, and taking another look at one of JNMP's most influential papers. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.